0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Osuka. Coming up, hundreds still in desperate need of help in Papua New Guinea, one month on from a major earthquake. 1,776 students, they are currently displaced. It's election fever in Fiji, but there's still no polling date for candidates.
2: That has caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of
3: concern amongst the
2: political parties.
1: And a royal facelift for Solomon Islands' currency as the central bank looks to update its coins.
3: The governor informed them that uh, it is a normal process now that we'll have to change from the queen's effigy to the king.
1: But first, hopes are high that relations between Solomon Islands and Australia are on the mend after Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare visited Canberra this week. Mr Sogavare met with his Australian counterpart, Anthony Albanese, the first such meeting to take place in the Australian capital since the Pacific nation signed a controversial security treaty with China. The treaty had sparked concern across the region, but Mr Sogavare used his Canberra visit to allay those fears. Nick Fogarty with more.
4: It was a lightning visit and Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare wasted no time in putting his country's position on the table. Australia is
1: currently... Uh, Solomon Islands, the largest. Australia is, I uh, want uh, to uh, confirm that, Solomon Islands partner
4: of choice. Mr. Sogavare didn't shy away from addressing the elephant in the room, his country's security treaty with China.
1: I reiterate my uh, commitment to, uh, to support and work with the uh, uh, Pacific family of foreign uh, nations, and my commitment conveyed through my uh, many attitudes. And uh, in this regard, Solomon Islands will not do anything. Uh, Prime Minister, that will undermine our, uh, our national security and jeopardize the security of any or all, for never be used for uh, foreign military installations uh, or institutions of uh, foreign countries, because uh, uh, this will not be in the in the in the in the interest of uh, of Solomon Islands people.
4: His presence was warmly welcomed by Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Thank you for your clear and unequivocal
5: commitments, commitments for France.
4: While relations between Solomon Islands and Australia have been frosty in recent months, those taking part in the talks say it was warm and cordial.
2: It was uh, very cordial, friendly. Uh, but of course uh, uh, looking at um, uh, the priorities that both governments had.
4: Dr Jimmy Rogers is the Solomon Islands Secretary to the Prime Minister.
2: There was genuineness in the discussion. Uh, uh, There was, um, uh, I think the important thing here is, is trust between leaders, between governments, between countries.
4: Dr Rogers says the poor state of relations between the two countries can be attributed to the negative media coverage Mr Sogavares received.
2: The media often plays and interprets things wrongly and, you know, it doesn't really do justice uh, to, to to what Honourable Sogovari and the government is trying to do, which is to make sure that Solomon Islands continue to be safe and that that doesn't go down well in, uh, with, with, uh, uh, with the way that um, um, it's seen in the Solomons.
4: Talks between the two leaders were away from microphones and behind closed doors. James Batley, Australia's former High Commissioner to the Solomons and a distinguished fellow at the Australian National University, says there was more to the meeting than just words. Both governments are trying to show
2: that they still have a, uh, a working relationship. Uh, they have confidence in each other. Um, of course, there's, you know, there's already a lot of substance in the, in the relationship, a lot of activity at all different levels. So I think the, the main thing in, from both sides, in fact, yes, was, to, was to show that this relationship is, uh, is uh, still active and it's still still productive.
1: It's been one month since a massive 7.6 magnitude earthquake struck Papua New Guinea's eastern highlands. But community leaders say scores of people are still in desperate need of help. Hundreds of students were displaced and many others were left homeless. But the fear is the toll could be much higher with many areas cut off by landslides. Bravka Volader with more.
6: The earthquake damaged buildings, roads and telecommunication towers and led to at least seven deaths. The epicentre was near PNG's remote Highlands region. Billy Elia, chair of the Red Cross in the Eastern Highlands, says three weeks on and they're still seeing the effects of the disaster.
1: The latest is, is uh, 1,776 uh, students. They are currently displaced, and f- some students are residing in the town, uh, while uh, 50 students have uh, decided to stay in, in, a, in a small classroom, and they are overcrowded.
6: Cassie Sawang is the member of parliament for Rai Coast in Madang Province.
7: They have over a thousand people that they are. Uh actually taken care of. And I have another group, around 325 of them down at the SIDO stations. They had these uh, violence and uh, killings related to sorcery and death before. And on top of that, the earthquake has further disturbed them, so the assistance coming from uh, the government is quite slow, so actually my district has entered in, into a mm-hmm. MOU with uh, the faith-based organization, so they actually are uh, delivering the much-needed uh, relief and assistance at the moment.
6: Chris Walker from the Christian group New Tribes Mission has been delivering some of that aid, uh,
2: among medication and food and clothing that we've been asked to help with to help the displaced people. Uh, we've also as- actually been asked to send a number of temporary shelter tarps and our canvas so that people can uh, uh, still have shelter because uh, houses were damaged in the earthquake. So it's just one humanitarian crisis on top of another.
6: Cassie Sawang says some communities at the heart of the epicenter have not received help. Roads have been inaccessible because of landslides and mobile towers have been destroyed.
7: In these remote villages, they told me like their life is in constant fear now. After the earthquake, because of the landslips.
6: Back in the Eastern Highlands, Billy Elia says walking is the only way to get to communities. In some places, landslides have blocked paths. And even if roads are clear, he says there's no vehicles for his team to
1: use. A lot of people need uh, help, like uh, basic necessities, cooking utensils, and beddings, and uh, water containers. The government didn't do a uh, site assessment too. No, no help has been coming from uh, other NGOs too, especially the remote areas. So we can't assess because we don't have the uh, vehicle.
6: Valachi Cagliata is the secretary general of the Red Cross in PNG.
8: We've responded to one province, which is uh, Medang province, but we're here to respond to the other two provinces, uh, Morobe. And the uh, Eastern Highlands.
6: He says it's difficult taking relief supplies, including non food items, to about 200 affected families in Morobi and the Eastern Highlands.
8: The reason is that we don't have NFIs, so trying to ship NFIs from Brisbane or Kuala Lumpur.
1: Valachi Cagliata, ending that report by Dubravka Voladere. Now to Fiji, where tension and anticipation is building ahead of a national election. While campaigning has been underway for several months, there has been no date yet issued for when polling will take place. Candidates from two major political parties are under investigation, while new laws have been criticised for stifling the government's political rivals.
7: Well, we've just been patiently waiting, you know, just really keen to see. When the elections are going to be, we've been waiting for a number of months now.
1: Small business owner Maria has been busy working and hasn't paid too much attention to the election until now.
7: You know, I feel worried at times what the election will bring, but at the same time I'm hopeful, you know, that there'll be some positive change.
1: A date for Fiji's national election still hasn't been set, but the government has promised it'll be held before the end of the year. Professor Stephen Ratuva, an expert in Fijian politics from Massey University, says it's most likely to take place around late November.
2: We are now into October, which means that the announcement has to be very soon.
1: But there's been no shortage of drama as the country prepares to head to the polls. Two candidates from the People's Alliance Party have been referred to the Fiji Independent Commission Against Corruption, following a complaint by the governing party, Fiji First. It alleges that Linda Tabuya and Sajal Narayan breached electoral laws. Sitivani Rambuka, who leads People's Alliance, was also called into a meeting with FICAC yesterday. He spoke in a social media video outside the commission office.
3: I was uh, called and I received the call in my
1: Mr Rambuka says the commission may question more members of his party in coming days and assure the commission they would cooperate. Meanwhile, his party has filed a complaint of its own against Fiji First. It alleges Fiji First breached electoral laws by distributing money and gifts since the start of the campaigning period in April.
3: With details, what we consider, be massive vote buying. Nothing like that has ever happened to Fiji before.
1: Fiji's Anti-Corruption Commission and the Supervisor of Elections are yet to make any findings about the complaints but that's not all that's causing concern. A series of controversial amendments to the electoral law is also frustrating candidates. One is a new rule that requires political parties to provide evidence of how they plan to fund election commitments.
2: Any promises that they make, if you make any promises which has financial implications, and they have to provide evidence of where the money will come from.
1: Professor Stephen Otuva says that would put the governing party Fiji first At an advantage.
2: Because they run the budget, because they are in control of the economy, and they are able to use the budgetary system to forecast how a particular program is going to be funded.
1: And puts opposing parties at a disadvantage.
2: It reduces their capacity, it reduces their confidence, it reduces their ability to maneuver to do their campaigns because they're always worried that everything they say should be along those very rigid lines.
1: There's also been widespread criticism of a new law giving the election supervisor power to obtain any information or document he needs to undertake his work.
2: So that gives the vice of election a tremendous amount of power to be able to delve into the operation of political parties. So uh, that has caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of concern amongst the political parties.
1: The ABC has contacted Fiji First and the supervisor of elections about these concerns and is still waiting for a response with lots of questions about the elections up in the air fijian citizens like maria are taking things day by day
7: maybe some people are probably frustrated because they haven't we haven't heard back on when it's actually going to happen but you know because i'm a pretty how do I say this? I've been really busy just trying to keep my head up and the business running. And I'm just like, yeah, it's going to happen. We just, you know, have to keep pushing. We have to keep being positive.
1: And that was Fijian businesswoman Maria ending that report about Fiji's national elections. Now to Vanuatu, where elections will take place next week. 219 candidates will be vying for office some two years earlier than expected because of a snap election. The rush to get polling underway means many Vanuatu citizens living overseas may miss out on casting
5: their votes. Mackenzie Smith with this report. With campaigning underway in Vanuatu, officials are scrambling to get voters registered. A plane will fly out to New Caledonia this weekend loaded with voting papers where a polling station is being set up in New Mayor. But in Australia, where thousands of ni Vanuatu seasonal and other migrant workers reside, it's unclear what options there are for voters. Tim Kautere is a seasonal worker in New South Wales.
3: Well, everyone on the scheme, we are here, but everyone has to exercise their rights back home to vote. Very important, and most of the crew, they want to, but we just don't know how. So we were asking around.
5: Overseas voters can nominate a proxy voter in Vanuatu to vote on their behalf, but the chairman of Vanuatu's electoral commission, Edward Kaltmat, told Pacific Beat yesterday that he didn't know what was happening with voters in Australia and New Zealand. He says the electoral commission is working with the embassies there.
1: Well, we're trying to, we're trying every best to provide access to every sentence to vote. There are eligible voters to cast their vote. It's their right to vote. So we're. Trying every best, we uh, doing everything that we can to allow them to vote.
5: Peter Foliaki Lokotui works with seasonal workers in Victoria. He says there's been a lack of support for overseas voters compared to what other countries do for their citizens.
8: Nothing official, or whether the, the you know uh, the government is like, like Fiji. You know, Fiji was very well structured and, and very purposeful in how they went about this. But yeah, not, not from the Vanuatu government, in, in my view.
5: Vanuatu's snap election was announced in August after Parliament was dissolved in a move widely viewed, as designed to avoid a motion of no confidence against incumbent Prime Minister Bob Lohman. That's given little time for candidates to prepare, although that hasn't stopped the Malwutu Māori or Council of Chiefs from standing in the polls for the first time. Back in Australia, a Ni-Vanuatu postgraduate student, Jack Tugin, says it's a critical election. He's been trying desperately to reach someone back in his village who can be a proxy vote.
3: I'd love to say some, like, Put, give my say, which is true, vote and vote for someone who um, is, um, yeah, probably go get into the government and give the stability in the government and probably um, sort of some development, which is um, what most of the islanders, especially the farmers and all those, um, wanted to see. So I'd love to um, have a say on that by,
5: by making a vote. Vanuatu's High Commissioner to Australia, Samson Fare, didn't respond to requests for comment. For now, hopeful voters like Tim kautere and Jack Tugan are waiting with bated breath.
1: Mackenzie Smith reporting there. New research shows that Tonga's population declined by nearly 90% after Europeans made contact back in the late 1700s. In just 50 years, the population of the country's main island, Tongatapu, dropped from 60,000 to just 10,000 people because of disease brought by the colonialists. Reporter Jordan Fennell spoke with the study's author and Australian National University PhD student Philip Parton to find out more.
9: Contemporaries in the Pacific, so in the 1800s, all kind of noticed that the population was declining around them. All sorts of weird and wonderful explanations were basically every explanation you could come up with other than diseases were being thrown around to describe what was happening. But it wasn't until a lady called Norma MacArthur, who did a, a really kind of groundbreaking study on Pacific demography around the whole region, and her work has been really influential for a variety of different reasons. And and one of the reasons is that she looked at what turns out to be a reasonably limited selection of historical records and determined that if there was depopulation, it was quite limited. So that framed research in that regard for quite a long time. I think archaeologists have always known and questioned that because being in the field looking at vast and spectacular remains of past societies, and it's been kind of hard to reconcile what you see on the islands versus what these descriptions are. So in a way, yes, I was surprised that the the estimate that I came up with was so high, but equally not surprised because I've, I've stood on the top of mounds in Tongatapu, and you know, as far as you look up the plantations, and as far as you can see are these rows of, and grids of of habitation site.
0: You used a bunch of different methods to to find this out from uh, missionary records to shipping records, um, but also some pretty high tech technology as well. Talk me through the tech that you used um, to figure out uh, that Tonga had a much higher population up to 120,000 people, much higher than previously uh, believed.
9: So LIDAR is a aerial laser scanning technique that has been quite famous in places like uh, Angkor Wat, Mayan communities, for uncovering vast remains of ancient settlements it's an important tool for modern archaeologists because particularly in tropical regions because the laser pulses in a way remove vegetation from the image that we can see from the bottom of the plane and that allows us to then map where um, archaeological features that kind of have a height are located so that that includes, in Tonga, the walls, mounds, the monumental tombs that are in the former royal centres. So this is – it's a really kind of amazing data set to have access to.
0: And um, have have you had much response from Tongan communities or, or other researchers here in Australia to this particular research?
9: Yeah, so so my wife is Tongan and she, she posted it onto her social media and um, – We've had a few of her friends write to me and asking me questions, which is cool. And then I've, I've shared it with some of my Tongan friends and they're all very interested in asking lots of really fantastic questions. A lot of them, are they're very interested in past cultural practices and and reviving them. So this kind of information about how their ancestors lived is, is really interesting to them and very important. Um, but people I shared with the draft with, there's a colleague who works in um from Numea and he's sort of we were quite working quite in parallel but he's writing a book about depopulation in the region um and I hadn't met him until reasonably recently and our work while done independently really dovetails into each other the, these reassessments are going to be a, a a new thing research direction and as you can imagine if we're talking about 70 to 80 percent declines in population these have their their impacts are very profound and really change how us as outsiders and from a from a variety of different disciplines whether that's um, academics or development uh you know international development how we kind of conceptualise what people were doing in the past.
0: What do you enjoy most about being able to to research um, these kind of topics?
9: I've always had uh, an interest in the past, and I remember in um, primary school I was fascinated with ancient Egypt. I, I got a what was called a youth ambassador for development, one year posting kind of thing to Tonga in 2012, and that's where I met my wife and we we lived in or i lived in tonga with her from 2018 till last year so having that interest in the past and then in tonga the past is kind of everywhere everyone's living it in the present so as you're driving down the main road into the into the city because we lived in the in an outlying village um you'd see these mounds and the walls and things like that. So you're definitely immersed in it and I found it really quite fascinating and the more that I looked into it, that's how I ended up becoming a, a researcher in this domain.
1: Australia National University PhD student Philip Parton speaking there to Jordan Fennell. After the death of Queen Elizabeth II last month, her eldest son Charles is now the head of the Commonwealth. So now some of the 54 Commonwealth countries, over which the new monarch presides are preparing to update their currency to feature King Charles III. As Hugo Hodge reports, one of those countries includes
8: Solomon Islands. Since the Solomon Islands dollar was first introduced in 1977, its coins have always featured an effigy of Queen Elizabeth II, Now, Solomon Island coins are set for a facelift. Early conversations are underway at the Central Bank to introduce the country's new head of state, King Charles III, on the country's coins. The Central Bank's manager for corporate communications, Ural Matanani, said updating the country's coins was discussed in a recent board meeting.
3: So what was discussed on the board level as far as the information I have received is that uh, the governor informed them that uh, it is a uh, normal process now that we'll have to change from the Queen's effigy to the King. And uh, established protocols are also there in place for this process to take place.
8: At the moment, there's no timeline on when King Charles will start appearing on Solomon Island's currency.
3: The timing now is it hasn't been confirmed. It will take time to have that changes take place. Yeah.
8: First, the Royal Mint in the United Kingdom will need to design an effigy of King Charles, which needs to be endorsed by Buckingham Palace. It's expected the bust of King Charles will face left, instead of right like the Queen does. The Royal Mint has yet to release a date for when the new coins will enter circulation. In Australia, that process will start next year, while in New Zealand, it will take several years because of a backlog of coins. Introducing new coins and banknotes can be expensive for Pacific nations, as they have to get their currency minted overseas in countries like the UK, Canada and Australia. The Central Bank of Solomon Islands mints their coins at the Royal Australian Mint, but it wouldn't say how much it will be spending on the new coins. In
3: terms of costings, I will not have the information with me now, but in any case, especially with changes uh, relating to uh, the currency and uh, different denominations, there there definitely will be costs associated with this kind of process. So when, when that issue starts to pick up and especially moving towards changing the effigy, there'll definitely be more discussions into this.
8: Jim Noble, the managing director of Noble Numismatics, says upgrading their coins is something Commonwealth countries are already familiar with.
2: You know, sometimes over the reign of Queen Elizabeth, we had several design changes because of her ageing. So, So simply, say every 25 years, you get a change in design anyway.
8: He says the old coins can be recycled.
2: They can withdraw them if they wish and reprocess them by reprocessing the metal.
8: But for the time being, coins featuring Queen Elizabeth are legal tender in Solomon Islands, at least until the bank sets a date to demonetise them. As for the rare coin collectors... Mr. Noble doesn't expect a rush for coins featuring the Queen's face. Those that are circulating, they'll be a big enough issue to satisfy demand.
1: Jim Noble, the Managing Director of Noble Numismatics, ending that report from Hugo Hodge. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review. I'm Evan Masuka. Thank you for listening, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.